Hello, I'm Michael Bott. Thank you for joining us for the latest Prehistory Guys interview. And this month, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Duncan Garrow of Reading University. We met Duncan at the Landscapes of the Dead conference back in November 2019. And when we heard him talk, we just knew we had to get him on the show. He teaches later European prehistory and archaeological theory. His research interests include the Mesolithic, Neolithic transition, one of our favourites then, uh, long-term histories of deposition, burial practices, the interpretation of radiocarbon dating and archaeological theory itself, much more besides as well. He's currently co-directing an Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project entitled Grave Goods, Objects and Death in Later Prehistoric Britain, as well as the Neolithic Cranags Project. He's recently directed excavations in the Outer Hebrides, the Channel Islands and the Isles of Scilly, and he's currently working on a book exploring ritual deposition in British prehistory from the Paleolithic through to the Iron Age. So, lots to talk about then. And, I should say, um, <laughs> Rupert has a thing about Cranags, so he was completely overexcited about talking to the man who has helped push back their possible dating to the Neolithic. Anyway, enough said. But, just to remind you that we record our podcast at a distance at the moment, so Rupert, as usual, is in France, I'm in Warwickshire, and Duncan is uh, down in Berkshire both of in, in England, of course. So, better get on with it then. <laughs> Welcome, Duncan. Welcome to the Prehistory Guys podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to it's be here. It's great to have you here. It's great yeah. to have you here. How's things with you today? Um, they are uh, interesting in these troubled times, is yes. probably the best word. For anybody listening um, in the future, I think you yeah. probably know what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, we do live in interesting times, that's certainly true. Yeah, but doing research um, without easy access to libraries, even in this yeah. digital age, is, is, is challenging. Because, you, you know, with archaeology, you do still use quite a lot of book books. Yeah. Um, yes. So that's proving interesting in so how how would you in i mean we've just given you a sort of glowing cv overview thing how would you introduce yourself duncan <laughs> that's a question yeah. <laughs> um i think i'm in terms of my my archaeology I, i've always just tried to do what what's what interests me and yeah. um i feel is important at the time and i quite like um that the sort of winding road that leads me down. I'm not. I don't. I wouldn't say I'm particularly focused, um, <laughs> but hopefully focused enough not to be too unfocused is what I what the <laughs> the path I try to tread. Yeah. Um, so and I, I suppose it uh, that perhaps stems back to um, my um, Cambridge Archaeological Unit days when you're digging a development site. You don't get to choose what archaeology yeah. Um, yeah. you do, um, and I think. Um, you could, that's a, a great thing because the archaeology chooses you as some of my colleagues yeah, used yeah. to say um, but it also makes you a bit more open-minded I think and um, ready to ex find the interest in all sorts of different things that and, didn't previously recognise yeah. In the beginning did archaeology choose you or did you choose <laughs> archaeology at the very beginning? Yeah, um, I wasn't one of those kids that went out um, picking up flint when I was seven um, I, was, I, I went to Ephesus in Turkey with my, my, my family and oh, when I was about, I don't know, 13. And I remember finding that pretty amazing. Um, and I always liked history and classical, the classical world, the kind of stuff about the past that you get at school. Yeah. Um, yeah. I slightly, I, I quite like the, I, I liked outdoor stuff. And um, so I kind of veered towards archaeology because I wasn't totally sure whether to do history or not. Um, and I like, quite like the idea of doing something different. So maybe inside me, there's a voice saying to to do that. And then I, I loved it from the word go. Um, and especially yeah. from when I started digging. Yeah. Um, it's great. What was your yeah. first dig? Um, it was Wandlebury Hill Fort, just outside Cambridge. <laughs> um, actually, that's the first time I did any digging. I went on a... Um, that was an Iron Age hill fort, and that was great. I mean, yeah. the first thing I dug was um, an Iron Age storage pit full of... Um, lovely riches you know loads of oh wow and, okay really so where was that and, um, just outside cambridge on our, on our student training excavation that, that charlie french was leading um and that was that was great um and 
um, a really cool feature to be digging. And um, I just enjoyed the whole experience. And I asked to come back the next year when it wasn't my year, but but they let me, which was nice. And um, I sort of slightly accidentally ended up um, working for the unit in Cambridge after I finished my degree. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the... Uh, um, I thought I was going to do a PhD and I didn't get funding for that. Um, but it turns out it was the best best thing that could ever happen to me, really, because um, that changed my the course of my archaeological career and taught me so much. And it was it felt, you know, so disappointing at the time not to get the funding. But you know, mm, yeah. however many years later, you realise what a great thing it Something was that I didn't to turn out like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you you've certainly tackled some pretty major projects. Over the years, haven't you? I mean, just reading through the list of your papers is uh, is, is quite impressive. And one of the things that we particularly wanted to talk to you about was uh, all your work on dating the Neolithic through the Western Seaboard. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I'm almost inclined to just toss it at you like that, really, because uh, <laughs> yeah. because you know, I'm sure that you, uh, you you know you'd have the the best ingredients that you'd want to tell folks. Yeah. So um, so so that project um, was done jointly with Fraser Sturt um, at Southampton. I'm sure you know I've worked with a lot. Yeah. And hopefully yes. will do for many years to come. Um, but Fraser and I were. Um, we, 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 we did our PhDs together, which is where we met. And after that, we were just looking for... We were interested in the the, the, the way in which the Neolithic arrived in Britain. Yeah. Um, and obviously, when you're interested in that question, you have to look across the channel. Um, and um, for that reason, we, we, we sort of began to um, try and get a project off the ground in Guernsey, because um, it was kind of France, but kind of not. Um and a little bit easier bureaucratically to get um, involved with in terms of excavation. Hmm. Um, so um, we we dug at, at Larry a great site that um, actually Barry Cunliffe first fully excavated um, and just for one year and, and had put a marker down as it being an interesting site. So we'd started there um, and in, with the transition in mind. And then um, we, we were just thinking about you know how we could build that into a bigger research project and try and you know address the 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 question that we are interested in the yeah. process through which the Neolithic moved from the continent to Britain on a bigger scale and um, Fraser in particular because Fraser's um, um, a maritime archaeologist mm-hmm. um, amongst many things but um, he, you know he was interested in the the sea and the seafaring aspect and got me interested in that and in the end we 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 came to realize that people were trying to look at the question of how the the neolith this thing called the neolithic moved from the continent to britain across the channel but no one actually ever looked at the channel they only ever looked at france or mainland britain or ireland um and we thought i'll tell you what why do people not really look on on islands and um we ended up doing a bit of research there and published that in in our um, Grey Waters with Neolithic Argonauts paper in antiquity, mm, which was great kind of, title. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Um, and uh, that was just looking at lots of different islands and the, the the archaeological evidence for for mobility across the sea at that time. And um, we realised that people, because partly because of development, partly because of all sorts of different reasons, that certain island groups really hadn't seen much archaeological work in relation to the early Neolithic, and we thought we'd try and change that. Can I ju- just ask uh, in, in there that, uh, something that hadn't occurred to me previously and something that uh, you touch on in, in the paper, is that how um, uh, the maritime conditions at the time would have affected uh, the way in which people's migrating or uh, interacting from the continent would have viewed the potential of the seaways uh, getting to and from Britain mainland or, or the islands? Yeah, um, so I think there's... Um, Fraser would certainly say that, that too often the sea is drawn as this this kind of uniform blue expanse yeah. over which you travel and then you get to land and then you have mountains and <laughs> valleys and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, um, and Fraser would tell us that um, we need to have some texture on that, that sea. Um, and I think that really a lot of people weren't really fully aware of, of, of that issue. Um, Chris Gar had, applaud, uh, had, had approached it um, 
with um, Callahan in a paper, but um, okay. that w w just, which was um, really interesting that they looked at that. Um, but we wanted to take that a bit further um, and just look at the kind of affordance that the sea gave you. I mean, and and, and um, you know, you can cross the channel um, on a lilo on a good day, as Fraser always says. And if you choose your day right, it's fine. Um, but there are certain conditions that you need to take into account. And if you're crossing the channel, that you know, in paddled craft, which they would have been in the Neolithic, you get swept, you know, tens of miles in one direction because of the tide, and then tens of miles back in the <laughs> other direction. <laughs> so when you do things like plot a, a, a course across the, the sea, you're not going from A to B. You're going on this crazy zigzag line. Am I right people... in thinking that uh, conditions in the channel would have been slightly more problematic than they are today in terms of the shallowness of it and turbulence? Um, it, you know, yeah, it was. It, it, by by the, by, if we're talking about four thousand BC, it wouldn't have been a million miles away from what it's like now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was also, you know, it's also important to try and model when when the channel formed and what what happened over that that period because people again that hadn't really been done for archaeology um yeah. um you know paleo geomorphologists and people like that in, were interested in it and um, but no one so one of the things that we did on that project was actually just produce a, a map of an accurate map of sea level through time that no one had done because the, the 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 geographers are interested in in sea level curves but they don't really mind. They're not worrying about where where people are going to find sites. So mm. it was just producing a map of the sea was one of the things. And you know, sure. there's a, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what what were the biggest surprises for you coming out of that project? Yeah, <laughs> we had an it's an amazing project to to be involved with because we just got to work in some spectacular places, and um, it was very logistically. Um, yeah, involved a lot of logistics, um, but um, which seems to be a theme emerging in, in my work. <laughs> um, but um, so, but the, the plus side of that was you got to work in a really wide variety of places. They're all islands, but and so they shared similarities, but they were immensely different. And we got to, you know, it was fantastic. So, some great archaeology. Um, the surprises um, we were. It was very surprising to. Um, it's like none of this it was all a surprise in a way and I'll, I'll elaborate on that but um um all of the sites that we looked at were had all been found because things had been eroding out of a cliff edge but no one had a clue what kind of site any of them were so we had to have a bit of luck to find anything really mm. um so that was really really interesting you know, methodologically from that point of view. But perhaps the biggest surprise was the strange um, microliths that we got in Scilly um, that were more like northern French or Belgian types than southern English types. Yeah. And that oh, was right. kind of a bit, um, you know, to the side of what we were actually <laughs> looking for, um, but amazing. So um, we had Hugo Anderson Weimark out were, were digging with us and he's a um, lithics expert and luckily because he spots them and goes these look a bit odd um and um gradually emerged through discussions with various continental experts that they were a certain type so it seems there's a material connection um between you know northern france and belgium across to Scilly, which is a very odd kind of link but that yeah. was that, that was really surprising yeah um and the, the site in Eurist was um, it's hard because it was a very heavily eroded island um, off the, the, the main coast of Eurist. Um, and it was, um, so the archaeology was challenging, but it had lots of intrigue yeah. um, um, in its pottery assemblage and, it, and, it, and, and, it, and its sequence, actually. So, but I won't go into detail there. <laughs> it's too technical. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So yeah, I hope that's enough surprises. And I suppose maybe another surprise was how hard it was to find what you really wanted to find. Mm, um, mm -hmm. um, which Alison Sheridan, I think you spoke to her yes, a little yeah. while back, but she we did. She yeah. said exactly that in her book review of the monograph that we produced. Like it's just hard to. So we didn't particularly find really early mm. Neolithic site. We found 
early Neolithic in the broad sense, but none of them were, you know, um, chronologically very early. And that's really what we're after. Yeah. Um, and uh -huh. but the archaeological record is, is what it is. So perhaps there isn't anything like that. But yeah. and of course, we were aware that, that we might not do that. But it was doing trying and then failing really was um, a, a good learning experience. But you got some great archaeology. Sure. So it wasn't a failure in that way. No, no, sure. Yeah, so no. how did the archaeology? So how did um, what you found uh, doing this project feed into your ideas about the Mesolithic, Neolithic transition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it, it was hard because we did a lot of um, radiocarbon dating as well um, as part of that project, um, and in a way, the the results that we got fitted with the conventional narrative that um, Alistair Whittle and colleagues um, had produced previously. And I shouldn't be disappointed with um, fitting in with the conventional narrative because maybe it tells us that that's right. But it's al <laughs> it's, it's, it's always uh -huh. slightly um, disappointing to 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 not challenge things a little bit, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. Um, so all of our islands, they're they're in the sort of more peripheral zone, away from the earliest Neolithic that they defined, um, which was um, in the southeast of England. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of backed up that narrative really nicely, which is great. I shouldn't I shouldn't feel disappointed in that um but it also it kind of reminded you that of the bias of excavation in the southeast relative to where we were looking and the and it made us think about the effects that might have had on our understanding of chronology yeah. um, and that's a project that we've never got around to, to doing but it'd be nice to address that a bit more mm -hmm. um one day <laughs> for sure never enough time never <laughs> enough time yeah there isn't mm -hmm. Oh, one thing I did take away, though, from the paper, Duncan, is that I hadn't realised this before, um, but the islands show later date for the intrusion of the Neolithic package, if you like, than the mainland. And what I took away was that, in your view, that reflected a very much more nuanced idea of the exchange between Mesolithic and Neolithic, or, or uh, yeah, the, me yeah. the hunter-gatherers and the continent, yeah. that both sides would have been responsible for the exchange, that, you know, it wasn't just pressure from the continent of uh, migrants coming in, that, you know, it was a two-way exchange, and so the transition is more nuanced than the, we are perhaps given to understand. That's right. And I think that, um, you know, since we did that work, all the ancient DNA um, stuff's come out, um, which is very much putting, putting back on the agenda, large scale <coughs> migration from the yeah. continent, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, and, um, and in a way that makes it even more important to have a look at these, these places where that perhaps that doesn't clearly fit. Yeah. Um, so those microliths that I was, I, I was talking about earlier that we found in Scilly, um, they suggest that there's some kind of contact in the fifth millennium, so before any Neolithic happens anywhere yeah, yeah. Um, in Britain, um, and there was there was backing and back and forth, but it wasn't it didn't result in seemingly in large scale gene pool yeah. and transformation or the arrival of lots of Neolithic things and um, objects, and I think you have to. In that circumstance, you have to make the most of the tiny glimpses that you get because it's a difficult yeah. process to see archaeologically. It's kind of tantalising, yeah. given where the Sillies are, that they're on that western uh, mm. edge there, which sort of suggests that thoroughfare, rounding of that corner off Cornwall, is probably quite a, you know, quite a thing. But we don't yeah. know, so it just yeah. remains tantalising, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess I think one of the uh, the, the very important things f for me that uh, that came out of uh, particularly you know listening to you uh, uh, to you giving talks that uh, something that we've talked about a lot is the, the fact that we need to get rid of these badges you know where we talk about Mesolithic Neolithic Bronze Age Iron Age as if they are these sudden changes as opposed to these really possibly sometimes very slow transitions between one way of life uh, and another and uh, and and that looking at the uh, so whether it's the 
a transition up the seaboard of you know how different cultures are coming into mainland Britain from the continent, or or indeed anywhere else. We, we, you know, we'll we'll talk about um, you know your work on uh, on grave goods later on. But but that's another interesting point. Is you know this this transition between two fundamentally I say two but uh, but these fundamentally different ways of uh, of being uh, as opposed to these you know these broad you know these bands that we make that we, it's as if you step over a line and you're into a new yeah. age when that's entirely not the case yeah that's right and i think that um uh, you know you i always you have to always stop yourself when you're saying that, that you talk about neolithic people because it's just a silly thing to say, really, because they never mm. thought of themselves as Neolithic. It doesn't have a, a meaning in in, the, in terms of the prehistoric past. They were mm. just people, and they might have been doing what we now see as Neolithic things. Um, so it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a tricky one. Um, and, of course, as archaeologists, we have to look at firm categories that are... That sure. are, um, yeah. that, to, to be able to do analysis, and perhaps we'll talk about that later, because that's... Yeah. I think perhaps perhaps annoyingly for everyone in lots of what I've tried done in my work it's it's looked at categories and seen where those the edges blur into other things and I think it's actually interesting to look at those blurry bits because um that's where you can understand the the core um the core of the 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 middle bits of the area that you draw the line about better yeah if you see what I mean yes. yeah so talking yes. about uh, blurry bits, um, Rupert, um, he, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't personal. Yeah, yeah where are you going? <laughs> where are you going? What are we doing? <laughs> well, I thought I thought you might uh, like to return us to Uist and um, and well, Cranogs and Cranogs, uh, things. Cranogs, yes, yes. Uh, uh, a lot of our listeners know I have I have a bit of a soft spot for <laughs> Cranogs, and uh, I, I know that you've been doing some pretty good work on Cranogs and you're uh, about to, all things being equal, you're about to kick off and do I'll some tell, more. Tell what are you what, saying, Michael? What, well, I'm saying is, Cranogs, <laughs> what in your mind, Rupert, your your personal view, uh, is a, a, what a Cranog is, because not everybody will have thought about, uh, given time to thinking about Cranogs uh, at all. This is this is true. Uh, this is true. I was actually going to toss that to Duncan for his description. <laughs> but, um, uh, but uh, yes, I mean, we, we had a thing. When we were filming Standing With Stones, yeah. uh, and I, I, I really wanted to film a sequence of just rowing out across a lock in the early mists of a foggy morning, you know, and... Uh, just rowing out to a Cranogan, it, it never happened. We couldn't do it, but, um, but, but it's something I still want to do. But the the thing is that having, you know, your research and a lot of the new discoveries that have been coming out that have really pushed the dating back of these um, these man-made islands out in the middle of uh, lochs, up in the highlands and islands. Uh, so particularly... I should toss it to you to talk about you know the, the discoveries of a lot of these pots, uh, you know, ceramic items that have been placed in the lock whole. They haven't been broken and tossed in as rubbish. And so, go on, tell us about uh, all that yeah. side of things that you're working with there, because it's a fascinating new series, new bit yeah. of research. Um, so <laughs> it's a long story, but I'll try and keep it short. Um, <laughs> so um, all of the work that um, we've—it's it's a project that I've been doing with Fraser again—and yeah. um, um, all of the work that we've been doing, we've been mainly. Can, can we right can we here. define Cranog though? That's what I was trying yeah. to. Yeah, Rupert just did before a, did we okay. kick off, yeah. he kept it simple. Um, I did and, keep it simple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> artificial islands um yeah. in lochs um there's been an awful as like in many things with archaeology there's been a lot of debate about what is a crenog and what isn't and um sometimes life's too short to worry too much about that but um some degree of artificiality <laughs> is quite important um so but as we've found um in what we've been doing um sometimes it's an augmentation of a natural feature Okay. Um, so one of the sites that we've been looking at, you can there's a, a rocky crag poking out of the surface of the loch. Um, so they've they've seen that natural island, and then they've piled a lot of stones around it to make an artificial um, and, 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 and to enhance that natural with artificial. But on other sites, 
Um, in our case, again, they've piled stones um, purely on the bottom of the lock and made a made a big pile that came out above the surface of the water without any natural island helping them. Um, in in the lowlands, you get um, um, wooden crenogs much more, um, and they're more like the um, you know kind of stilt lake dwelling type things that and that that's what people... i was getting around to because yeah. i think that's the image if anybody knows anything about Cranach, yeah. that's the image that comes to mind thanks to places yeah. like the the the, the Cranock center on uh Loch, Loch Tay. Yeah. Isn't, that, yeah. isn't that interesting? You see, the, yeah. the thing that comes to my mind is the... Uh, Stony ones, yeah, is, quite is right. Stony island. Island. That's yeah. what I was trying to get, you yeah. know, extrapolate. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's important to so get those distinctions. clearly those are yeah. quite different things when you think about the construction process. You know, mm. if you're going to create a, a, a raised, stilted dwelling on out of timber, it's a very different thing to piling a load of rocks around a natural crag. Yeah. Um, so... And we, it's, who's to say whether those people that did those two different things had the same out, if they thought they were doing the same thing as each other or if, if, they, yeah. if they didn't, you know. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that, that has always puzzled people a little bit about Cranogs is their variety, their multi-period character. So you get them in, um, as it turns out, from the Neolithic um, right through to the post-medieval period. Yeah, and and all of those things get called Cranogs because of that mm -hmm. vagueness of definition that it's really just mm -hmm. an art artificial island. Sometimes they have dwellings on, but that doesn't really have to be the case for them to be called Cranogs. So, kind of Duncan, uh, t tell the story of, of your way yeah. into this and uh, and what occurred. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so we got involved um, because... Um, um, directly because of Alison Sheridan, actually, again. She oh, really? Again. Yeah, yeah. She, she knew we were doing the dating programme that I mentioned earlier, um, yeah. and she had some material from these sites, and she said, oh, I've got this new material, do you want to do to date it? And it totally fitted with our research aim. So we said yes, and we did. Um, so that was good. Um, but it, but um, at that point, no one had a brilliant idea of the kind of location that this material had come from. Mm. So... Um, um, Alison put us in touch with Chris Murray, um, who was um, who lives locally um, in Stornoway um, in the Isle of Lewis. Oh yeah. Um, and Chris is a um, a man of um, very many talents um, and abilities, amongst which are um, diving, scuba diving, um, and being extremely careful um, whilst doing that. Um, not least because he was once a Royal Navy diver. Um, so probably Indeed. had to okay. be very careful with yeah. the things that he was trying to handle there. Right. So Chris was out walking his dog one day, um, as he did, uh, saw a Cranog um, in a lock, and being a curious fellow, uh, thought, I wonder what that is, I wonder if there's any stuff, I'll get my diving gear and dive around it, as you do. Uh, so, and it's a lot of kit to lug. So anyway, Chris, um, Chris... Um, did dive around this island and found some pottery. Um, he took it um, to his friend Mark Elliott, who worked at the museum, because um, um, he wanted to report what he'd found and he also wanted to find out what it was. Um, and Mark um, said, that's interesting, that looks like Neolithic pottery, not Iron Age or whatever we think. Um, so they embarked on a um, Google Earth mission to find more sites and um, amazingly dived a lot of sites and um, um, found Neolithic pottery on several. Um, so um, so anyway, that was the background, um, the work that Chris and Mark did. Um, and so we got in touch with Chris and we said, we'd like to come and do um, some more archaeological work with a capital A Um on, on these sites. Um, so we went up to see Chris and he took us around um, and showed us and we then uh, understood the, the kind of site that we were talking about. We, really at the beginning we didn't even know that they were Cranogs, all, all of this material had come yeah. from Cranogs. Um, so we were then able to get some funding and to do some underwater geophysics and to do some um, archaeological diving and recover more information and take some environmental cores and that kind of thing and do a small amount of excavation on one of the sites, the one that has the natural crag. Um, and we've just, um, we're just starting a, um, an Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project called Islands of Stone that um, Fraser's leading on. 
um, and we're working with Angela Gannon, who's based at Historic Environment Scotland, um, and they've got a load of people there who are really um, have got so many different varied skills to offer the project, yeah. and they're really right. um, very supportive. Um, so um, it's going to be great fun working with them. Um, so we're going to be um, digging one really good site um, and finding hopefully um, a load more <laughs> yeah. um, to demonstrate yeah. that there are Neolithic crannogs right across the Outer Hebrides. Um, yeah. Mm. Uh, how, many, how many sites have you, have you um, been able to look at so far? Yeah. So we've looked in detail at um, three. Um, we've dug only one. Um, and mm -hmm. we're going to be digging one of the others um, that we've looked at in detail. Chris has mm -hmm. found six. Um, and then something I haven't talked about because the background is so lengthy. Um, but Ian Armit, um, who's at York now, um, dug um, what he thought at the beginning was an Iron Age site um, in the 1980s um, in North Uist. Um, and straight away they realised it was um, there was loads of Neolithic pottery. It wasn't wow. Iron Age. Wow. So that... After the, that, the they did that excavation in the 80s at Island Donnell, um, everyone said, oh, maybe there are more Neolithic crenels, because they found one which was definitely had Neolithic occupation on it. Yeah. Um, but then no one found any more, so everyone said, oh, maybe it's a one-off random site. So what, what Chris demonstrated <laughs> was that it wasn't. And what we yeah. want to demonstrate even more widely is that it, it is widespread across the Outer Hebrides and potentially Scotland, who knows. Yeah. Yes. Tell us uh, about the the fact that a lot of the ceramics, uh, if not all of the ceramics, appear to have been deliberately placed in the waters as opposed to yeah, just yeah. tossed in as rubbish. Yeah. So that's a, that's a hard one to to answer. Um, so some of the pots are, you know, immense. Then uh, there's never been a totally complete one, but if you're chucking a pot in a loch, it's going to break, break anyway. Yeah. So some <clears> of the pots that um, um, we've got out and that Chris got out. Are, you know like two thirds to three quarters complete which is an amazing thing to see when you wow when you're a neolithic archaeologist because you're not used oh to seeing Lord, that kind yes. of material yeah because yeah. you don't get pots in burials very much oh, bling mm. so you're not getting you know in the early bronze age you're used to seeing whole beakers and whole collodons all the time but that's just not what you see in the near that's pretty amazing loads of material around the islets sometimes massive not always massive um so, um, but the one site we've dug has very little material on the island. So it seems like whatever they're doing there is ending up in large vessels being in the water and not very much being on the island, which suggests that they're intentionally chucking it off into the water for purposes which remain to be um, pinned down. Yes. When we're looking but at the whole uh, uh, Uist and uh, Lewis, Rupert and I just recorded actually uh, a short podcast, a shortage podcast, um, about Kalanish uh, and some of the work that's been done there recently. When we're looking at the whole thing, bearing in mind that Kalanish encompasses uh, 14, 15 sites um, in an immediate vicinity on Lewis, should we be looking, including the Cranachs, in that kind of dating, that, that period, or not? Yeah, so, um, so the sites, we've got quite a good um, tight bracket of radiocarbon dates. Um, from around 3,500 to 3,200 BC okay. yeah. um, for our sites. And obviously that's just the dates we've got so far, but that's mm. from about four or five sites. Um, and so that's slightly before, it's the basically the phase okay. before Kalanish yep. kicks yep. off. Um, and the, the couple of sites we've looked at, and they're only, you know, like I think it's something like five, six, seven kilometres away from Kalanish. Yeah. Um, so really quite near. Um, so depending on what we find our Cranogs to be, <laughs> um, if we ever resolve that complicated thorny issue, um, <laughs> it could yeah. provide whatever whatever they are. It doesn't really matter. There's, they're a crucial piece of the jigsaw of the prehistoric yeah, Neolithic yeah. past that precedes Kalanish, yeah. which leads up to ultimately the construction of all that that vast monumental complex in in that part of Lewis. Um, yeah. So it's really important for understanding the origins of that site, you know, not necessarily because there's a direct um, link between the kinds of site that they are, um, yeah. but just in terms of our understanding of what people are choosing to do in that landscape 
um, mm -hmm. with stone. They're moving stones around, so they've got good practice about that. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. You said that lightly, moving stone yeah. around, but not at all. I mean, that they represent a huge amount of work and, and a massive labour. Don't yeah. they? I think that's something I haven't yeah. kind of realised before as well. <clears throat> that's that's right. And mm. and when you've got um when you've got massive stones like you have yeah. at Cannish, it's it looks more um like a like a huge amount investment of labour. Mm. Um um although sometimes people think perhaps they were just erecting stones that were found in that immediate location, but still sure. it's a massive um yeah. physical effort to have done that. Whereas the stones we're talking about are, are smaller, they're, they're, they're just about um, handleable between two or three people. Yeah. But there's thousands of tons of them and they're that's, out in the middle of a loch. Yeah. yeah. So um, one day we'll, Fraser and I will get around to doing some kind of calculation about the weight. We tried it once and then we completely bamboozled ourselves with um, Googling things about the weight of granite that we gave up. <laughs> but um, one day we're going to work it out and we'll say it took this many person yes, hours to, to pile this big load of stones up in the middle of a loch. Um, but, you know, the logistics of moving stones out across the water um, and keeping that site manageable, because they're, they're kind of 20 metres across at the base um, and yes. up about four metres high. It's a huge, big wow. thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it looks like um, some of the Neolithic chambered tombs that you get at the, around the same time if you if you took it out of the water and placed it onto land. So it's really interesting, yeah. And de they're definitely monumental, I think. You were kind of hinting at that, Michael. And, yeah, um, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. Well, it's the man hours, you know. It just, yeah. It's just not. It's no mean feat. No, it's, it no. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the more you think about it, the, the scarier it Crazy is, the idea it is, yes. of having done that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. And then you really so, be begin to, sorry, Rupert, I, you just, no, I was just going to say, then you really do begin to think about the drivers. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. The, the, what was sorry, making them Rupert. do that? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Rupert. Yeah. No, no, no that's all right. Because I'm just, you know, conscious of time as well and, yeah. and thinking that I, I'm going to, uh, I, I'm going to <laughs> uh, move forward, actually, because I think one of the, one of the biggest, uh, projects that you've been on for some time now is is about grave goods yeah. and uh you know you gave a wonderful lecture at yeah. uh, at the landscapes of the dead conference that, uh, last year and uh, i must admit so many eye openers for us just aspects of uh, well, just ways of, of seeing things really or trying to understand things that certainly we hadn't uh, considered before so uh, in fact I think one of the biggest things for me coming out of that just to l launch you into this yeah. one of the comments that you made <coughs> was about the multi-temporal usage of sites makes grave goods invisible and it was just that it, you know it was just it was such a simple statement and such a oh yeah okay no i can i can see what yeah. you're saying but but you ha you know you you just have done so much work on analyzing uh, burial practices and grave goods so i'm just gonna kick you off on that because we've got a lot of questions yeah, yeah. yeah no you, you you're right and um um, so, and ever since the beginning, it's felt like a project that you could, there's no end to what you could do. It's just this, the grave goods are such a, a And the beginning resource. was what, two years ago, three years um, ago? Yeah, three, three and a half years ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm, so luckily, um, uh, we've had a, a fairly big team. So it's a project that I've been um, running with Mel Giles at Manchester and Neil Wilkin at the British Museum. Um, and we're lucky enough to have had Amwin Cooper and Katrina Gibson doing most of the work. <laughs> um, and they've been um, collecting the data um, yeah. f about all those sites um, and, and certainly writing stuff too. I don't mean they've just been collecting data, but they did the, hard, the really hard work. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the drivers that we always wanted to have in place from the start was to to get that kind of substantial body of data behind us so that we could really say things on the basis of empirical information. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and also one of the things that's allowed us to do is to really get to know the, the finds and yeah. not just to go to the same old things that everyone always talks about when they're talking about grave goods. Um, yeah. So the more the project's gone on, the more all of us, I think, have felt that the key thing that we're trying to do is is to 
bring the everyday grave goods to the fore and not just focus too much on those fantastic ones that we see in in picture books yeah. um because really that's the nub of what 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 what, the, what putting objects with dead people was all about in the prehistoric past mm, um, mm. so that's been a, a great thing to, to be able to do and find some of the funny things that you know that people put in the, the subtle so the, things the yeah. context for setting off with the grave goods project is that in the past uh, we've tended to concentrate on the fancy stuff, your words, or you know the, the bling, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, the stuff that you know naturally springs out as oh, I like that, yeah, and ignore the broad context of you know what's actually been put in with the dead and buried. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, so what? Um, um, what have you done to extrapolate that information? Because you're creating a whole yeah, yeah. new database. Yeah, That's good the question. point, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So um, we, we, what we wanted, to, what we were very keen to do from the start was to capture everything that got, got put in graves. Um, so that we haven't said yet, but the project go, starts at the beginning of the Neolithic, so 4000 BC ish. Mm. Um, and ends at the end of the Iron Age, so AD 43. So we, well, the point was to look in the long term so that we really got some insight into the ebbs and flows of what's going on, that kind of thing. Um, and then, and, then, and what we wanted to do was to capture all objects that went in graves. Um, and we weren't stupid enough to try and do that for the whole of Britain throughout the whole of time. Um, and we toyed with that idea for a while and we thought, no, we can't really do that. Um, so we chose six case study areas around Britain yeah. um, and then did everything within What's those. That? That's uh, um, Kent, Dorset, Cornwall. Cornwall and Scilly, yeah. Um, Anglesey and Gwynedd. Oh, yeah. East, yeah. East Yorkshire yeah. Um, and Orkney and the Outer Hebrides, which right. I sneakily called one case study area. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll notice a heavily coastal distribution to our case study area sites in the inclusion of several island groups, <laughs> 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 which I was not meaning to do, but somehow it just hey happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't have to tell Mel we're going to do that. No, but it just sort of happened. Um, so that's good. But um, yeah, so we've, we've, we've tried to capture all the information that's given us you know you can properly say all right when are people putting pots in graves and how much does it happen yeah. when does it happen that people start putting cremated bodies in pots um, as opposed to inhumations with pots yeah. by the side of them yeah. uh, can you investigate how those things to those two things relate uh, what other crazy things do they they put with people and that kind of stuff yeah. um and um yeah rupert you were saying um so the neolithic which is what i was talking about at, at the, the the conference that you i, I met you both at mm. um was the neolithic's tricky because it just doesn't behave in the way that um grave goods should behave it makes it it makes you hurt scratch your head which perhaps you know the more i engage with it the more i liked it for that as i said earlier about you know sort of pushing at the edges of those blurry boundary categories um so um you were saying that I, i'd said about um time kind of making grave goods disappear and uh, that, looking at that evidence and trying to think it through it, it just make you know it takes something I've always tried to do since I first did my PhD looking at pits and was to try and let the material to try and properly understand those material dynamics of the past and what that's telling you about practice and that seems kind of obvious but I'm not sure we always take enough time to do that mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and once you looked you could see and the, the example I, I, um, that I gave um, was a really clear example um, which was um, um, you could see that pots had gone in whole um, and had kind of been broken as they got moved and new bodies were added. But and it got me wondering whether the same kind of thing had happened uh, elsewhere. It's just that yeah. the, it had happened so much that you, those grave goods have got had got you know mangled through the process of practice, mm. and and we, we we can still see and people I think had got you know myself included absolutely that we'd all got blinded by the fascinating human remains that are evident in many Neolithic tombs and um, and lost sight of those scrappy bits of, of, of material culture 
Yeah. Um, mm. Which are a, a scrappy, but only because of the way in which things happened. <laughs> yeah. I hope I'm making yeah. sense. Yeah. No, but absolutely. There's another case that you, you mentioned uh, specifically, and that was at the Tomb of the Eagles, where the pottery had been taken outside and burned and then put back again yeah and that's something i'd never heard of that before and i wondered you know is that something that is that unique to that side or is that something that you've seen elsewhere yeah um i mean that was that was john hedges who wrote up the the site originally it was his he made that argument um but certainly you know in talking to katrina who's gathered a lot of um the data for orkney um that's definitely something she would emphasize i think in terms of that you get just this burnt material um whether or not it's necessarily taken out of the tomb and burnt and then brought back in as he was hedges was arguing is on every site is open to discussion but there's things going on that are messing it about that are burning it so you get burnt human bone in these sites but probably sometimes it's not intentional cremation as such it's that the bones are getting caught up in the fires of whatever they're doing it for ritual pollution cleaning that whatever if you want to use that Mm -hmm. kind of um phraseology but they're doing all sorts of weird things in those tombs they're not just putting bodies in yeah so Um, the lesson for us approaching it is not to think of them in our own terms of sepulchral um, sites, but something that's happening there that's dynamic. And uh, sorry, yeah, that's really nicely put. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and they're, yeah, they're very dynamic places. And I think that you're, you're right that you know that we're we're not the first people to say this, but those those Neolithic collective tombs are, are places. That, that in a way, a tomb is a bad word for it. Yeah. Um, and they're like you were saying, Michael. That there's lots of different things happening. At, one mm-hmm. thing of which is is burial um but um there's all sorts of different things going on involving the in- interaction with the human remains that people are coming into that's not to do with burial it's to do with interacting with dead bodies and bits of yeah. bone yeah. um which is more complicated than that mm-hmm. so um and we've we've got this set you know that's that's the way we understand the dead and mm-hmm. as ever we want that prehistoric archaeology to challenge our own understandings mm-hmm. and make us realize that we're weird really not like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah well there's a lot of truth in that yeah there? it's important to make it do that always yeah, yeah I, I think one of the things that we can never escape really is that you know, we've uh, we've developed such a sanitized world and we just we don't really think about how unbelievably awful those places must have smelt yeah doesn't it's not a great thought is it i know (laughs) no but but perhaps that was you know that was part of their point and again people were used to that kind of thing and it's um it's a bit like uh, um, when we're talking about seafaring earlier Oh, it must have been dangerous going across the sea in those those skin boats. And if we did it, it would be really scary and dangerous. But that was just what they did. That was how you got across the sea. So in yeah. a way, that is the, a different kind of normal. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's, it's it's important to always bear that in mind when you're thinking about the past. And mate, well, I'm not saying they would have smelt lovely to them, but perhaps it was more <laughs> a desired part of their lives i don't know who knows as we know they're a bit weird uh, yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> well the other part of the normal is you know that their their lifespan was considerably shorter uh and yet we tend to think you know we tend to think when we're looking back into the past we tend to think in very broad time scales you know of you know tens hundreds not quite thousands yeah. but uh, we were talking to mike allen uh, last uh, last week, and his uh, research, you know, gives the lie uh, to this continual use thing. You know, things were made, people had an excited idea about what they were doing at the time, then they may have gone off the, you know, they may have let it alone for a bit. And yeah. things come in ebbs and flows and, and, uh, and what people are thinking about at the time that, that traditions don't necessarily last for um, hundreds of, of years and, and continued Absolutely. use does not mean continued use in the same way yeah. or the same attitude yeah. towards it. Yeah, and, and this other side of that coin or a related issue that it made me think about was, was one of the things that's come out of Grave Goods Project 
is just is the the regionality as well um that 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 a period isn't the same and especially with grave goods because it's such a you know at one level a very personal and localized thing that's happening yeah. um that people are just doing things quite differently you know um at certain times mm-hmm. in their own way they they a certain material becomes important for in, in cornwall in the in the, the bronze age you know like quartz or um or, or um sandstone in dorset you know they're putting okay. um it's local and it's not just because it's there it's important because it's local and that kind of thing really really comes out and reminds mm. you that mm. people aren't the same and they weren't the same across the bronze age or whatever that there is mm. lots of different things possible to do yeah mm. wanted to ask you about a couple of graphs that sort of leapt out <laughs> in their implications yeah. right rupert do you want to ask about uh, yeah, the the well, regularity. Uh, we're, we're 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 talking about the the same graphs, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, you uh, uh, you show really it it was a marked range of peaks and troughs going from uh, early Bronze Age, well, uh, early know, Neolithic, then, yeah, into the Bronze uh, well, Age. Well, yeah. uh, yes, I mean early Neolithic. You know, you the, the comparatively low amounts of. Uh, uh, of grave goods yeah. well we know no, uh, grave goods but then surging up to this massive peak of uh, you know of, uh, of burials with a kind of i don't know intermediate range of grave goods and then that dipping right down again well, and it drops off a cliff up that's the, the extraordinary thing it, yeah what's it's that about just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. <laughs> but, um no absolutely it's amazing isn't it when you look at it in that in that in that at that scale which is yeah, you know yeah. that's why we we wanted to do that um and so you, the early bronze age they really you know as we know they really go to town and they have amber and gold and jet and loads of pottery and everything like that mm. um and um um that's not necessarily as as we've kind of already discussed what everyone had in all their graves they probably mostly just had a pot um but um, th- there is l- a lot going on there and there's a lot of material moving around. And then, as you say, as you go through into the, the Middle Bronze Age, so um, mm-hmm. from about 1500 BC onwards, um, you're getting... Um, it's quite really interesting because actually the number of pot, but pots you get per century is more than the early Bronze Age. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's nothing else going in graves, really. They just have pots. Um, and it's it's partly about a transition to cremation, yeah. um, but it's also um, it's also just then they're not wanting to put fancy things in in, in graves, um, and um, an argument that that um, um, Richard Bradley and others have made for a long time is that you've got to understand grave goods in relation to other depositional practices, and in this case, hoarding. So putting loads of metal objects in the ground. Is very popular at that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So there's some kind of relationship between what you put in a grave and whether you're doing hoarding or not. But obviously they're not directly comparable things. They're only yeah. comparable from our perspective, really. Yeah. But there is some relationship, and it's interesting to try and tease that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah. is there it's any just... kind of zeitgeist thinking about uh, the, those you know that those intermediate low levels of burials occurring? You know, be- yeah. especially between the the um, uh, the Bronze Age and yeah. the, uh, the Iron late age. Bronze Age and early Iron, Iron Age, age. Not much is happening. Yeah, exactly. Is that a reflection yeah. of uh, uh, population levels or, or something else? It, no? if it, it's one of the things that we're <laughs> we're doing. Um, I know what, I know what you're saying, but yeah. probably probably not. It is just a reflection of the archaeological visibility of the practices mm. that we see. Mm. Um, so one of the things that, that Neil and Amwin are doing for the, the Grave Goods book is to look at this issue of, of how burials relate to hoards and finds yeah. on settlements yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, and I won't go into too much detail, um, but um, to answer your question, Michael, yeah. if you had another graph and you saw hoards, it would be going whizzing up to the sky at Around, you know, a similar oh, wow. time to okay. when those burials whiz down to the, the floor. Yeah. Um, but really, loads more objects. Um, in oh, hordes. that's fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah. 
so people are investing their material in in not in graves and they're not really investing anything in graves because you don't get that many wow um so people must be being burnt and scattered on the fields or chopped in rivers yeah absolutely fascinating yeah. duncan you just mentioned the book and i was going to say that the the project has many strands as end games yeah. it's not just a gathering together of a database it has many aims uh, right. yeah. many uses for this database that we're going to see, um, you know, become public and uh, and available. Do you want to speak to those? Um, yeah, that, that'd different be great. Things? So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, we, we, yeah, we have done all sorts of other different things. So, um, we there's a um, we've changed some of the galleries in the British Museum. So that's something that Neil in particular is working on. Um, so you people can follow a, a grave goods trail. Yeah. Um, and one of the, the, the motivations for doing that was really a realisation that, that, um, that, that, that some, as we discussed, lots of those amazing finds are from graves in museums, the kind of thing that makes it into the British Museum. But in a way, that, that the greatness of that object has made us lose sight of its context in a museum situation. Yeah. So people would see those great objects, but they wouldn't necessarily know that they were in a grave yeah. Um, and they wouldn't necessarily have been given the opportunity to have archaeologists telling them about the great stories that might lie behind those objects. So we mm. tried to, to bring that out. Um, and we also produced um, some schools information packs, mm -hmm. um, which we're um, um, really to help teachers teach prehistory. Yeah. Um, so in those, we got some fantastic new artist reconstructions and um, Michael Rosen, the children's yes, poet, wrote yes. some poems who we're all thinking of. He's not very well at the moment and oh, yes, wish him his best. Yeah, yeah. Um, But um, he wrote some fantastic poems um, that really, um, and he's done some great um, videos on his YouTube channel of them, of, of him reading them out and talking about the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, which is just amazing to hear. Oh, fantastic. And we're hoping that, yeah. you know, he's got such a an amazingly wide and loyal following because of his talent <laughs> um that that um just just to try and help you know he, we hope he's going to help people learn about these amazing burials that we we just want people to find out about and to engage with and it's often hard for them to have a chance to do that so yeah. with a bit of luck it's done that too yeah, I was just saying to Rupert before we uh, started that you know one of uh, the aims of working with, with the British Museum. Uh, what I take away is, is that people crowd into the Egyptian uh, sections of the British <laughs> Museum and, and sort of uh, yeah. nowhere to be seen in the uh, yeah. British prehistory section, you know, that's right. not looking the, at the stuff from their own backyards. No, that's right. It's, yeah. it's, and I know we're biased, but it is sad. Um, mm -hmm. And um, Neil's got some great images that show that exact thing that you just talked about of crowds packed <laughs> up against mummies and then just like tumbleweed blowing through um, the British Free History yeah. Gallery. And so many people yeah. do just walk through that gallery yeah, as yeah. a corridor. Um, so as part of what we've been doing, we um, we um, uh, in we conducted um, interviews with people that were walking through. The gallery and looking at the trail and things to try and um, to try and get a sense of people's motivations yeah, and, yeah. and perceptions of the gallery and of grave goods as well. So that was that's been really interesting too. So what's come? It's lack of story though, isn't it? You know, it's the fact that, that we have yeah. such a wealth of you know. I mean, just the, the the narratives that we have around whether it's ancient Egypt or Greece or you know what have you, that uh, people have engaged with the notion of people, whereas our own prehistory um is still well you know it, it's th this is very sadly yeah. missing you know yeah. we need to put an awful lot more effort into telling those stories yeah mm -hmm. and i think i think it's it's just that the, the egyptians have had a better press in the in the, in the <laughs> british public imagination um, yes and for I 150 think, years yeah, but, yeah. yeah. I think uh, they did things in color yeah. That helped. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That is true. <laughs> yeah. But I think the great thing is that if, if prehistory, if British prehistory gets taught more in primary schools, yeah. just people will have a, a, some sense of it, which, you know, literally mm. um, um, until the last 10 years, that 
they may have gone through their entire education never even thinking about prehistory. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's what we've been tre- keen to facilitate is to people's learning about that. And once they learn, start thinking and come into contact with it, there's no doubt that they'll be, you know, they'll be mm-hmm. as amazed as we all are about, well, maybe not quite as amazed as us, but, you know, similarly <laughs> amazed. Well, they should be. Best. They should be. Yeah. You know, it's it's an interesting thing. When you, you look at sites like, you know, Must Farm, for example. Yeah, 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 so yeah. You, so you're, you, you can actually see how people were living as opposed to, you know, random things that might be uh, found. Yeah how people were living and if you think back you know when we were kids if we were taught anything about prehistory then it was always you know people dressed in skins and being like savages and you know civilized by the romans (laughs) yeah Yeah, absolutely yes and uh so when you get sites like must farm that completely turn that on uh yeah that notion on it on its head visibly um and it's stuff like that that you know kids should be uh, should be made aware of this. Yeah. I'm sure a lot yeah. more children would be fired up by prehistory if they fully understood, <clears throat> uh, you know, any of those yeah. aspects. They, we've just got to give the opportunity. Yeah, I think because mm. yeah. the interesting stuff is there. Yeah. So, yeah. what should our listeners be looking out for to come out? Um, you know, they they can access um, from this project. Uh, yeah. Duncan. So, from Grave Goods, um, we've had um, so in all of the. Um, academic outputs that we're producing will be open access so anyone yeah, cool, can, cool. can get hold of them um, and um, they can look um, via the um, prehistoric grave goods website it's on the Reading okay. blog um, or so we've had one paper out in proceedings of the prehistoric society um, and we've got another one coming out in a journal called archaeological dialogues and then there'll be the book which will be an open access monograph so it'll be a book that people can oh, wow. buy but it will also be a, a a thing that you can download for free off the internet. Um, so, but that's will not will be the book be year. entitled? <laughs> will the book be entitled "Objects and Death in Later Prehistoric Britain"? It will probably even um, very similarly titled to the project title. Yeah, exactly. Grave goods, objects, and death. Exactly. And with yeah. a bit of luck, that will be out. Uh, maybe not people's Christmas present this year, but maybe the one after. Keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as far as the British Museum is is concerned, yeah. So, um, so the trail is up at the moment. Um, Neil and some colleagues in um, um, other galleries, um, including the Egyptians, we've just been talking about, um, should be we hope ro- rolling the trail out um, more widely because um, we're trying to make people again, even in the Egyptian galleries, there's these cool finds and people don't know that they're yeah. from graves necessarily. So the British at the British Museum, um, this idea of a grave goods trail is going to be rolled out a bit more widely, um, including um, within the Egyptian gallery we were just talking about, because um, some of the finds, even those great finds from Egypt, lots of them are for graves and people wouldn't necessarily know. So we're just trying to get that idea of context across to people. Mm. Um, and then the school's resources have been available for a while via the Grave Goods um, um, website on the Archaeology Data Service. Um, so people can check that out or check the website. Um, do you want me to read the website web address? Is that? Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link in the. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, we've broken up again a bit. It's getting annoying, isn't it? Yeah. Never mind. Are you back? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got you. Um, we gotcha. I can read out the web address. Was that boring? Uh, we can also put the link in the comments yeah, below, or what have you, in the, better, in, yeah. on the on the page. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, we oh, will do that. Your, your image is blipped now, Michael. Oh, mm-hmm. really? How yeah, bizarre! You've frozen for me. Uh, uh, there is a, good, a, a, there is a disturbance in the force. Yeah. There is. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's telling us something. Um, maybe maybe not who knows who knows wow sound is fine though yeah duncan's been a real pleasure talking to you hopefully we'll be able to do it again is there anything we've missed we've covered you know quite a lot of ground there i'm sure of course there's stuff we've missed yeah or that we can come back to mountains of stuff we should uh, we we should make this uh, (laughs) we should make this the first of uh, of however many really 
Chinese. Do, uh, yeah, let's see what we get on those Cranogs, eh? Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, do you know Indeed. what? We, we, we shall say this to our listeners because our, our listeners know that we have, uh, you know, it's, it's, on a, it's just simmering on a back burner at the moment, but at some point we will be making a film about Kalanish. Yeah. And, and you're going to be doing work on the Cranogs up on Lewis. So I just think it would be rude if we don't bring those two <laughs> things together. Yeah. Yeah. And would. make sure that yeah. we're on Lewis at the same time. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Duncan, uh, it's uh, it has been eye-opening in many ways. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank it you really for your has time. been a pleasure. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for giving me time to talk about archaeology. It's always nice, and for even for listening. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it. Well, thank you again to our listeners for, for, for listening and, and being a support and giving us feedback and uh, our Patreon supporters for making it all possible. And with that, we will say bye-bye until the next time. Bye-bye from until me. Until next time, folks. <laughs> and goodbye from me. And goodbye from him. Yeah. Hello, Michael Bott here. Thank you for watching this Prehistory Guys show. There's loads more to watch and you can get some of it on this playlist here. If you'd like to receive updates about when we publish new content, hit the subscribe button and you can unlock even more content by becoming a Patreon supporter. Hit this button here to find out more about that. See you soon.